Father, I'm so thankful for the book of Deuteronomy. I'm so thankful for how intricate it is, and yet it's so simple. Uh, so grateful, God, that you reveal yourself and you took the time to go over with people your expectations, your call, your wisdom, demonstrating your power, demonstrating that you alone are worthy of all worship and glory. Uh, and Father, we just need to be more and more convinced of this all the time. So please bless our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're starting chapter 10. The goal is by the first Sunday of May. Is that the last day of Sunday school? I don't know. Somebody should be in charge here. Um, maybe. I have to ask Ruth. Uh, my goal is to get to the end of chapter 11. I'm thinking it might take us two weeks to do uh, 10. Uh, there's a lot going on here. If you remember in, in chapter 9, we had just come out of... Is there any more coffee left? Oh. <gasps> Um, we had just come out of the uh, chapter dealing with the golden calf. Yeah, I'll take some if I can. Thank you. Um, I know. It's okay. We just came out of chapter 9 dealing with the incident of the golden calf and the rebellion. And that is the idea of, of taking the covenant that God made uh, with Moses or through Moses to the children of Israel. It's a conditional covenant and fracturing it before the opportunity for Moses to even come down with the tablets and present it to them. Now remember, the Ten Commandments are not means of salvation. It's not a checklist of salvation. Everything about Israel upholding the Ten Commandments has everything to do with their intimacy with the Lord. Thank you so, so much patron saint, um, has everything to do with them having fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. I know you guys probably get so sick of me saying words like fellowship, intimacy, friendship, those types of things, of what it is to walk with God. The Bible talks about it on almost every page. Whenever he is calling to Israel, he's not calling on them to get saved, get saved. That's not what he's saying. He is inviting them into demonstrating his ways and worshiping him alone. Why is that? Because this entire structure is set up like a treaty would have been issued in Middle Eastern times to the kings of that era. You have a great king who is known as the suzerain. And the suzerain is all-powerful, has a massive army, is looking to bestow blessing and provision and all those types of things on a people if these smaller kings will pledge their allegiance to him, follow him and him alone, not rebel, uphold good relationships with him, the whole idea. And so this idea of, of, of this trade-off that's going on here between them is one that is conditional in nature and each party is responsible for upholding their end. Are we familiar enough on the conditional covenant aspect that we can move forward? Yes? Okay, so notice the creation of the golden calf is actually to diminish the image of the creator. Remember, you did not see an image. Whenever God spoke to you, you did not see an image. What you had were his words before you. And remember, his word, his truth was to be the central focus of what they were to attach themselves with. So when Aaron cast together this image made out of gold and put it on display and said, Israel, behold, your God. Next thing you know, everybody's worshiping, having a party. It's all going downhill from there. Moses come down and he breaks the Ten Commandments as a breaking of this agreement that they had willingly entered into with God. Now, why is this important? 
Because if you read back in the Exodus account of the first generation, and this is what Moses is doing, he is referring us back to the first generation mistakes so that the second generation who is coming out of the wilderness will not make the same mistakes. Anybody ever said anything and you stopped for a second because you just got real scared? You're like, I just sounded like my dad when I said that. Anybody ever done that? And it really brought back a lot of memories for a moment, didn't it? And you thought, good grief, I resolved to never become that person. And here I am, that person. Right. Guys, Taylor, I'll give you that dating advice later. Never mind. But that might be embarrassing for him. If you want to know what you're getting into with a lady, look at her mom. There it is. Now I have a sweet mother-in-law. Let that go on the record. Broadcast it. So now here we come in chapter 10 with the grace of God. How does God deal with the rebellious people? Notice this. He doesn't annihilate them, right? That was the first, I'm so mad at these people, done, right? Let's just wipe them off the face of the earth. We're going to start over with Moses. Moses gets in between God's decision and the people, and he pleads on behalf of them. He begs for satisfaction in the situation that their sin would be atoned for. And the Lord listened, and the Lord spared them. And here's what's amazing, guys, if you really think about it. It's amazing that the Lord spared Aaron. I mean, Aaron had more heightened accountability and responsibility and revelation than almost anybody else that was there except for Moses himself, right? I mean, wasn't it the whole thing, Lord, I don't have good speech, I can't talk. Well, here, take Aaron, your brother, with you. Guess what? Now they're a pair everywhere they're going. And whose staff was it that they threw? Aaron's. Which one budded? Aaron's. Everybody see that? Who was called out of the tribe of Levi to be the first priest? Moses is of the tribe of Levi as well. But it was Aaron who they established and started giving all these ordinances to uphold and conduct proper worship before God. So it's interesting to see that God spares Aaron in this situation. So, chapter 10, verse 1. At that time, Yahweh said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this because if you're reading anything critical about this, if you're reading anything commentary-wise, they're going to point out to you that the chronology that is listed in Deuteronomy is very messed up, okay? You're going to find out, for instance, this call of what happens here in in, uh, Exodus 34. Remember, he's referring back to events in the first generation. In Exodus 34, there is no mention at all of crafting an ark in that time. In fact, you don't find the idea of actually crafting the ark in Exodus until you get to about Exodus 37 or something like that, okay? So there's a time gap that takes place. Why in the world is it brought up here? Sometimes in ancient literature like this, the idea is to stress a point rather than it is to have your chronology always line up. How do we know that's true? Number one, not all the Gospels are in chronological order. That's one thing that we've got to remember. They come by pertinent events. There's a whole lot that went on in Jesus' life that John doesn't even touch. Obviously, the other three writers do, but his whole point is to list out seven signs, seven proofs, seven works of power or miracles by which to convince people so that they would believe and be saved. So you've got writers approaching it from different aspects. We shouldn't get all hung up because the chronology's not there. But obviously, there's a detail, a point that they want us to recognize here. So let's move on. And and again, this is talking about the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford. Everybody with me? 
Okay, so we, we get that. Verse 2. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. Now, remember, the ark, where did the ark end up at? Do we know? Not today. Everybody talks about how Ethiopians have it hidden under lock and key and that kind of thing. But where did the ark end up at in Israel's history? Hmm? Do we know? In, in the tabernacle, yes, but go one step further. Bless you. What? Obed-Edom? Okay. But where did it ultimately end up after that? Solomon built what? The temple. And what's in the middle of the temple? The Holy of Holies. And whenever we talk about the mercy seat of God, everybody familiar with the mercy seat? The mercy seat is the lid to the ark of the covenant. I should have brought the little cast gold thing we have of the ark. Everybody seen that? It's really cool. You can reach down in there, a little bitty budded staff and tablets. It's cool. I'll bring it next time. We'll do that. Little rails. It's, it's neat. But the top of that is the mercy seat. And the reason why is because when it was sitting in the Holy of Holies and a priest could only enter one time a year, and we're going to talk some about that next week when we talk about the cross of Christ, but only one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people, the actual presence of God dwelled. And it was... It had to be a humbling situation. How do I say this? We're told over and over in Scripture that God doesn't dwell in temples made by man's hands, right? It doesn't. We can't do anything to supply for him. He supplies everything to us. And yet, think about the idea. That's what the Old Testament Hebrew idea of grace was, is the fact that God condescends himself to communicate with his creatures. And so for him to actually be located in a place to where the priest could come in and offer atonement for sin before him in his presence. The fact that when Moses met with him for a period of time and walked away, he had to cover his face with a veil because it was radiating from the Shekinah glory of God. Guys, this is this. you want to talk about deep stuff in Scripture? To me, this is deep stuff. It's deep stuff to think how, how God seeks for opportunities to want to touch people's lives in that way. Still holy. Still the idea of that he dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he invites us. It's so incredible for Old Testament Israel. And then we have the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, whose blood paves a path and whose death ripped the veil. Yes? Everybody remember that? There's a big thick veil that stood between the the, um, most holy place and the holy of holies inside there. It's very odd. And from what I understand, the veil was three and a half inches to an inch thick. Sometimes people think more. That's not like power team guys ripping phone books, guys. That's some really heavy-duty stuff. That's amazing to think when he cried out and gave up his spirit. Done. Man, that had to send a message. Can you imagine the priest who was outside of that? Can you imagine him? Right? I can't look in there. I mean, I can imagine being scared to death knowing that the presence of God is in there. Man, it's something else. So this idea that God is going to actually take the time, okay, you guys have already broken this thing. Let's do it again. Is that not God? I tell you, I had an awesome experience with my son yesterday. We were sitting at the counter and we want to play Play-Doh is what we're doing. So man, we got Play-Doh out everywhere. We're making donuts. We're making muffins. We're making people. He's got everything for Play-Doh. It's, I didn't even know they made such things, okay? And we're messing around with it. And uh, this was a little scary. 
we made little guys. They had little impressions of guys that you could make. And then you turn the impression thing around, you cut it out of the Play-Doh, you roll it out, cut it out. And then you take the, the other side and it's got like the face and everything, what they're wearing and, you know, legs and all this stuff. And you press it on there. When you pull it off, you've got the impression. You remove the Play-Doh around it, you got a little guy you can play with. And all of a sudden, we got two little guys going here, and my son takes a little Play-Doh knife and starts stabbing his guy in the face <laughs> of his guy. I know. And all I can hear in my, in my head is, wee, 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 like Friday the 13th stuff. I'm like, oh, this is terrible. What is this? Good grief. I was like, son, what are you doing? He's like, I wanted to. I wanted to. I'm like, okay. And then it dawned on me. Do you realize that we can make him new? Do you realize that even though his face is all messed up now and he's missing an arm now or whatever else it is, we can make him all new like Jesus does. And so we took it and we rolled it up and we rolled him out and we re-impressed him and pulled away the Play-Doh and he looked brand new. And he looked at me and goes, he's new. And I said, he is. And he goes, just like Jesus. And I said, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. It is incredible how long-suffering our Lord is. And this idea of taking a people who he disciplined, don't get that wrong, grace doesn't exclude discipline, okay? He disciplined those people. Some of them lost their lives for refusing to turn back to Yahweh in this. But he begins again. He always begins again. Always begins again. So notice it says, verse 3, So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand and he wrote on the tablets. Now think about this, God wrote, okay? In fact, I think the only other place where we see that God wrote is when Jesus bent down with the woman in adultery and, start, adultery and started writing in the sand. And no, nobody knows what he wrote. Um, but notice it says here, he wrote on the tablets like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the same thing that he spoke from the mountain in Exodus 20, he's reiterating that, which Yahweh had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and Yahweh gave them to me. Now, Moses has got a responsibility to fulfill. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. Here is what set Moses apart from the children of Israel. Get it, guys. It's real simple. God said it. Moses did it. God said it. Moses did it. In fact, after the incident where Moses comes encounter with the Lord in the bush that burned but was not consumed, everybody remember that? From then on, do you realize that Moses only has one sin to his name? Isn't that incredible? And what was it? He struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. We know that. You see what I'm saying? But there was something that took place because of Moses' fellowship with the Lord. Where it wasn't, well, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but, and we're kind of teetering on the edge of morality of whether or not we should commit something to, from what I know about the Lord and the type of relationship that we have together, why would I want to sin? Does anybody remember why Moses sinned? What did he say? What's that? No, he wasn't afraid. What's that? He was frustrated. Let's say the real word. He was what? He was angry. You stiff-necked people. Right? 
I can picture Moses, you stiff-necked people. And in his anger, because his feelings were leading the car, they overtook his facts, didn't they? And instead of doing what God said, he did what he wanted to do to prove a point that he thought would feel good. Ugh! And now he can't enter the land. He's the last person to die of the wilderness generation before the children of Israel can enter in. Remember that. It's important. God says it. Moses obeys it. He's a pretty great example, with that one, except for that one instance. Now, here's something that's odd. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 have some very... We don't know where hardly any of these places are, okay? There's a lot of geography. Some of it's mentioned in Numbers. Some of it is mentioned by different names and numbers, maybe. Scholars don't know. Maps for that time are not really that accurate as to where they were, okay? But notice what it says, and here's what you know is is part of the wilderness mess that's going on. From there, they set out to Gugada, I guess that's how you say it, and from Gugada to Jothbath. Now, Jothbath, Jothbath, whatever, man, I don't know. This is the only place that we know of. And I'll be honest with you, I tried looking for it on a map and I can't find it, okay? I tried looking on a few different maps, I can't find it. It is 10 miles southwest of Elath on the Gulf of Aquaba. So let me give you real quick. If we know anything about our geography, we know the idea that the the Nile River comes down, or I'm sorry, not the Nile River, the Jordan River comes down, empties into the Salt Sea. Everybody remember that? Okay, down at the bottom here. And then that runs out into a gulf, which is called the Gulf of Aquaba. Okay, everybody remember that? This is somewhere located there. Do we know where? No, not much. You're like, wow, this is really inspiring stuff. I'm just trying to tell you, we don't know. But notice it says a land of brooks of water. And at that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before the Lord, to serve Him, and to bless His name until this day. Notice that there are three responsibilities that Levites have. Now, there's a whole lot more. We have a whole book devoted to it, known as the book of Leviticus, and there's a lot of things that are mentioned in Exodus as far as what their responsibilities are as well. But notice here, primary things that are brought up. Notice, number one, to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Let me ask you a question. Building this Ark, carrying it, Yes, we have the conditional commandment, the Mosaic covenant here. We're going to drop it inside the ark here. That's where it's going to be. And the ark is covered in what? Do we remember? Why is it that when Aaron fashioned a golden calf and the people worshipped it and paid tribute to it, that it was sin, and then God turns around and has Moses make a box and cover it in gold? How do we rationalize that? Well, God commanded it. That makes the difference, right? His word is something that makes the difference. But does that seem odd? What does the ark represent? Right? The presence of God. The presence of God. And we know that the lid that was made for the ark represents the place of atonement. So notice, it's not that the uh, gods, well, if you guys are prone to idol worship, let's just put together an idol so you guys have got a good idol to worship. That's not what he was doing there at all. He wanted something that symbolized his presence. And notice, by Moses putting the tablets in, it's not like he did it in secret, okay? He didn't sneak up and kind of open it a little bit and shove them in and put it down like that and step away. I'm sure there was probably a ceremony that surrounded it. There was public knowledge of knowing God's promise to us 
has been firmly placed in this situation. And any time that you see the ark moving and the priest unto God moving along with it, you need to be aware of his promise that he's always made to take care of us, provide for us, everything. Everybody get that? Any questions about that? Okay. Some of us just know that if you take the lid off the ark, everybody's face melts. That's all we know. Roxanne, it's not made out of gold. It's covered in gold. And, and, and what it's, 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 it's made out of something called acacia wood. Um, and I haven't done much research on acacia wood lately. Uh, but it's also, but it is covered in gold. And whenever they fashion the cherubim that are on top where their wings touch, it's all one piece of gold. The person they had fashioned it. It's not, let's put this piece here, this piece here, and put it together like it's Walmart furniture or something like that. It's all one whole big thing. It's all, it's all one piece. Uh, and of course, everybody's got their reasons as to why. Well, uh, gold represents the uh, brilliance of the riches of the glory of God. He deserves the best kind of thing. Uh, you know, the reason why it's all one is because God is one and it's whole. And, you know, we'll, we'll have things like that. But you'll also find that there's a lot of commentators that vary on why. Uh, when you get into like Levitical uh, dress and the breastplate with 12 stones that they wore, you know, a lot of people got a lot of different opinions about that. Sometimes they match up. Sometimes they don't. I would say the representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we don't need to be so much concerned about stones as we do about God's word. I don't know. But there's all kinds of varied things in there about why that might be the way that it is. Notice their second responsibility is to stand before Yahweh to serve him. And that's going to be explained here in just a minute. Look at the last one, and to bless his name until this day. In other words, the Levites were the human representatives in conducting worship unto a holy God for those ends. They were the intercessors, if we want to say it that way, for the people. The people would bring their animals for sacrifice. The Levites would sacrifice them. They're the ones who got their hands dirty and dealt with the situation. So they were leading the worship unto God. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 9, Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. Remember, Levi didn't get a piece of the land. In fact, we find that Manasseh replaces Levi And Ephraim replaces Joseph when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's sons that he had with the woman while he was in Egypt. Those two sons replace it, and Levi has no land of inheritance for their name. However, I thought this was an interesting quote. The Levites received no portion of the land, yet they were wealthier than all the other tribes combined, for Yahweh was their inheritance. That's A.W. Tozer. It may be easy for the Levites to look at a situation. Maybe we act like this sometimes. But, well, how come I didn't get what they got? Especially we do that in a culture that has to be fair with everybody. By the way, has being fair with everybody done us any good? It hasn't. That's crazy. But when everybody's got to be fair, we got to have equal distribution and all this stuff like that. Well, where's mine? Well, how come I didn't get mine? Some of the Levites could have felt that way. But imagine, no. What you get to inherit, what was the other word that we were using for inherit? Do you know? What were the interchangeable words? Some of your translations in English will have it. Go into the land and possess it. The idea of inheriting and possessing the land, having an ownership claim upon it. Now, when you think about that a segment of people of Israel were set aside so that they would have an ownership claim, a portion in God himself, all of a sudden that resonates a lot better, doesn't it? Selfishness gets out of the way real quick and you realize, 
I have a special relationship with Yahweh that these others don't have. Moving on, verse 10. I moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And Yahweh listened to me that time also. And the Lord was not willing to destroy you. Notice that. Moses interceded. He prayed on behalf of them. Uh, Notice it says here, verse 11. Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, we're going to stop on verse 11 because 12 gets into the chiasm, but I want to point out something very interesting in 11. Notice up until this point, the command had always been go in wilderness wanderings. In fact, after, that, after the great sin of not believing the Lord and going into the promised land with the first generation, when we see these places up in verse 6, uh, Beeroth, Benedjokin, Moserah, uh, all that. In fact, we skipped that, didn't we? We did skip that. I apologize. That's where Aaron dies. Notice in verse 6. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. If you look at Numbers 33, 31 through 38, if you want to write that down, Numbers, in fact, we've got time to go there. Let's go there real quick. Numbers 33. I apologize for missing that verse. Nobody said anything. You guys are trying to get out of going over that verse. Numbers 33, 31 through 38. And it's one of those redundant lists that keeps us from reading these Old Testament books, isn't it? Right? Right in the middle. Notice verse 31. They journeyed to Maseroth. Notice we got that one. And camped at Benijakon. Uh, they journeyed to Benjamin. I'm not going to try to read all that stuff, but you guys see it, right? Moves from place to place. Notice in verse 34, Jotbatha, right? Uh, so that one was, was marked. So notice, geographically, we can follow what's going on. And Moses, of course, is giving us an accurate account. But then after that, look at verse 37. They journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor, at the edge of the land of Edom. Then, and it's very interesting how this happens, then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of Yahweh and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. So that's where, and here's the thing, with what Aaron did, Aside from the grace of God, he probably should have died at the moment he made the golden calf, right? We would probably all say that was pretty serious. Notice that God spared him and still allowed him to live a little bit longer. I think that's very interesting that he allowed that because he didn't do that with his sons. When Aaron's sons came in and tried to offer something other than what God commanded uh, in their Levitical worship, God just killed them right there. And he even told Aaron, don't be sad about this which we sit here and think, good grief, where's a loving and gracious God in that situation? He says, no, don't be sad about this. They knew the truth that they didn't do it. God's very serious about his word and being obedient to it. So this gives the account of Aaron's uh, death. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 10 and you think about where it says in verse 6, there Aaron died and there he was buried, you know that that right there is actually Mount Hor. So if you want to talk about your geographical uh, location, how you're going to pinpoint all that together, that's it. I just want to show you that real quick. Verse 11. Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. The reason why this command is so important is because it is the command that, that the Lord finally gives the thumbs up 
that they can move in the right direction. Before, all they were doing was wandering around in the wilderness just waiting for people to die. That's all they were doing for 40 years. When is this person going to die? When is this person going to die? When is this person going to die? And they're kind of sitting here wrestling with this repercussion of the first generation's actions. There finally came a day when God said, okay, now go this direction. You're going to possess this land. It's time to move out. So this right here is the marching orders for the second generation The fact that they are actually going to bring the incident, the disciplinary incident of Numbers 13 and 14 to a close. That's why it's important to know this. So any questions about that before we wrap up? No? Can everybody hold on to your chiasm papers for next week? I want to go through this. And here's the thing. You've got them right here in front of you. I've already segmented a chiasm. If you haven't worked on a chiasm before, Uh, you missed that part of Deuteronomy, then what I'm going to ask you to do is just read through from 12 to 22 and get familiar with how these are structured and see if you can find reasons why they're segmented the way that they are and if they have any parallel language that goes on. You want to be looking for that. For instance, let me give you one. Uh, Notice at the top, verse 12. uh, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? Everybody see that? Go down to verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Does everybody see how those are parallels? So notice those are parallels that you're going to mark. And here's the thing. Since I've already segmented it for you, if you want to go ahead and write in uh, the letters, you can. Uh, Mitch, is this on? Is this working? Oh, whoa. That's not good. Okay. That adds some. I don't have a pen. Look at me. I know. What's sacrilege is taking place? Let me show you this real quick. You can go ahead and label it like this. 1213 is A. 1415 is the B section. Everybody see that? Are we good on that? Do we need to zoom in? Yeah. The word of the Lord is large and in charge. There it is. For 16 is C. 17 is B, apostrophe, 17 through 19, and then 20 through 22 is A, apostrophe. And we will run through what a chiasm is next week when we deal with it, but, but just to give you a general thrust of what's going on here, the idea is that an argument is being made, a, a, uh, um, an unfolding of reasons and commands and those types of things is being made that has a central point that the author really wishes to hammer home. And the central point is always what is the middle of the chiasm. And if you notice what it is, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Now, it's real easy for us to point in the scriptures, get our fingers out and point in the scriptures and be like, yeah, Israel needs to do that, right? I mean, aren't they always characterized as a stiff-necked people? Right? Moses, you stiff-necked people, and he hit the rock. Stephen, you're always a stiff-necked people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You find that that is the way they're described always. Notice that the relief, and I'm not a chiropractor, okay, but the relief of being stiff-necked is the necessity of circumcising your heart. Now, I think this is interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. Notice that this is not something that God does. This is something that you do. This is something that Israel does. We would say it this way. 
circumcised, of course, evokes weird images for us, and we don't understand what the covenant, if we're not familiar with Israel's history. But what we would say is soften your heart. Seek to have a tender heart towards this situation and get rid of your hard-headedness, your obstinance, your bitterness. In other words, it's a call for humility and a crucifixion of pride. That's the idea. Taking up the cross, crucifying our pride daily, and walking humbly with our Lord. Everybody see that? Yes? Who's asleep? Okay. Let's pray and, and, and go. Father, thank you for your mercy uh, in loving us. Uh, thank you, God, that we're, we have a copy of your word in our hands. Father, it is there very much for us to read. Let us not waste time uh, on trivial things. Let us be saturated with your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.